This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, a daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We take the news seriously, not ourselves. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu, we'll look at extreme tornadoes and climate change after a rare string of tornadoes pummels Kentucky and several other states with deadly results as the U.S. passes the grim milestone of 800,000 COVID deaths. We'll look back on the devastating toll the pandemic has taken, especially when it comes to seniors and California regulators are taking aim at Tesla. The governor taking a page out of the Texas playbook on restricting abortion. He wants to use the same citizen lawsuit tactic here to target gun manufacturers. The season finale is succession, cementing the notion it's the best thing on TV right now. And what does Chris Wallace bailing on Fox for CNN's streaming service say about the state of impartial, objective reporting over at Fox right now? Do you watch succession? I don't. I'm late. I know I should. It's on the list, but you do. Yes. And and uh, last night's episode, which is like all all over social media. I saw all was, the tweets and I was like, well, now I really have to watch this great. thing. It was great. It was some of the best television I've seen. And as a non-watcher, I do feel like I have this sense that now they're, it's season three, right? So yes. they're, they're like three for three in good finales. Yes. Yeah. Oh, but this was the best. And there's another season to come. We will get into that more a little bit later. We start, though, with deadly unprecedented tornadoes in Kentucky. Harold Brooks is a meteorologist and senior research scientist at NOAA's Severe Storms Laboratory in Oklahoma. Thanks for being with us. These tornadoes, uh, at least, what, 74 dead, over 100 unaccounted for. Um, why was this so devastating? Well, I think the, the bottom line message is anytime you put a very strong and violent tornado into a populated area, um, there can be real big problems with with safety. Uh, in particular, in this in this case, these storms are moving very fast. They covered a long area, so if you just count the number of of people who were in the path and the number of structures that were in the path, it's a it's a gargantuan number. And it happened after, for the most part, it was after dark, and that's always a lot harder to to get information to people as we get later in the evening. Uh, and it it was a combination of a, of you just it, it, it just tornadoes and people don't mix very well, uh, especially in uh, especially after dark and when the storms are moving fast. Yeah, we had all these bad factors at the same time. What makes this different in terms of we had multiple twisters or the length that at least one of them went because that set a record right for for how long it was out there going through stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't think we've officially come up with a with a, a final length on the on the. From all the damage surveys, but if it wasn't the longest in the U.S., it was certainly there was certainly at least part of it was very very long. And even without that, it was it was produced even if it was multiple tornadoes, it was producing them over you know a, a very very long uh, stretch. Uh, so that's I think the the that's obviously the sort of the big thing uh, that we see out of it because uh, you know that's. Along there, if you if you just look at where the fatalities were, they're spread out over a very long area, and that's not very, that doesn't happen very often. Now I know that that you can't pin any one particular weather event on climate change, but that said, 
we are going to unfortunately uh, see a lot of this sort of thing happening in the future, not just here, but all over the world. Stronger thunderstorms, more fierce tornadoes, uh, more horrible hurricanes, right? Well, I'm not sure we can say that about tornadoes, especially about the intensity. Uh, tornadoes have a have a more complex relationship with the climate system than some of the other things you mentioned. Um, the we 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 in a in a in a gross way of saying it, we think of two primary uh, ingredients the atmosphere wants to have to produce a tornado, and one of them is is the thermodynamic energy, so the thermal energy, temperature, and moisture profiles of the atmosphere that essentially are the fuel for the thunderstorm itself, and that is almost that's so. You know, that's almost certainly going up. Um, but the other one, which is the, the, the organization of the storm or the, and the ability of the storm to rotate, is related to the, the change of the wind with, with height in the atmosphere. As the winds increase as we go up in the atmosphere, uh, in the environment the storm forms in. And that's not, it's not at all clear that that's going to become uh, stronger as we, as we go into the future. It might, in fact, become weaker. And so we have these conflicting signals in the in the tornado uh, important climate variables and for tornadoes especially the wind shear term really really matters and for the intensity of tornadoes that's the primary determinant is is the is how strong that that wind shear is so we've seen more variability in tornado occurrence uh, in the over the past 40 years to where we have the same total number of tornadoes on average in the u.s still as we had in the 1950s, but that we're having fewer days with tornadoes, but more days with a lot of tornadoes. And so the variability has increased over the last, say, 40 to 50 years. Harold Brooks, meteorologist, senior research scientist at NOAA's Severe Storms Lab in Oklahoma. Coming up, the U.S. marking another milestone and not a good one in the COVID pandemic. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, my mom just texted saying, see, I told you you have to watch Succession. <laughs> Charles right. watches it. Why don't you listen to him? Yeah, she's right. Uh, so, yeah, we'll talk about the big season finale uh, from last night. And then before that, lots of grumbling, lots of uncertainty about LAUSD's delay of its COVID vaccine mandates for the students. Right now, though, 800,000 Americans. I'm going to repeat that. 800,000. Americans officially losing their lives to COVID-19 as the country notches another unfortunate record during the pandemic. Did it have to be this bad? Is it going to get worse? Dr. Erwin Redliner directs the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative and is a professor of health policy management at Columbia University Medical Center. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Did it have to be this bad? Well, uh, unfortunately, to the extent that we haven't really gotten as far as we should have in terms of vaccinating our population, not only did it get this bad, but I've been predicting that we'll see a million deaths uh, by the end of the first quarter of 2022 if we go at this uh, at the rate we're going right now. So I don't think it's looking good, unfortunately. Very sorry to say that. And what have we seen and hopefully learned and what do you expect us to still experience this has hit disproportionately the senior population but also now the unvaccinated correct and look we um we we have a, a two americas now we have an unvaxxed and vaxxed america and 
the separation between those two groups in terms of getting really sick and dying from COVID could not be more stark with the the fatalities we've seen in the last couple of months and the ones that we'll see between now and the next three to six months will be essentially among the unvaccinated. People are taking chances with their lives that is really it's really incomprehensible for because uh to prove fealty to a particular political ideology or point of view or individual, uh, they're, they're playing Russian roulette. Those people are not getting vaccinated. <clears throat> and many of them will pay a price. I'm very, very sorry about that. But, you know, it's just difficult to know what to do. You know, I did go to medical school. I did pretty well. I don't remember a class and how to get people who were drawn into crazy misinformation that puts their lives at risk. If somebody was telling everybody, you know, smoking is good for you and seatbelts are dangerous <laughs> and that everybody was buying into that, it's just, it's this toxic combination of political ideology, uh, you know, and ignorance that is causing the lives of a lot of Americans. I saw these figures this morning. I'm sure you did, too, that uh, up till now of that 800,000 figure that we mentioned at the outset, about, uh, I think it was two-thirds of the deaths have been in 65-plus. Now, that's, of course, going back to the very beginning days of the pandemic, before vaccines, before monoclonal antibodies. Are we still seeing that trend, though? Well, we're seeing, you know, I guess the worst possible situation to be in is to be an older person, let's say older older than 65, with a pre-existing condition and unvaccinated. You know, you're just asking for a horrible outcome from that scenario. And the thing that's so frustrating, and I'm sure you hear this in my voice as a doctor, is that the thing is preventable. I mean, it's you just get a shot uh, and get a, you know, get the, the mRNA shots, the two of them, and then get booster shots. And you will be essentially uh, very much protected from getting very sick or from dying. There's not much more to say about it, guys. You know, it's that that's it. This is a choice. And uh, a lot of people are making a bad choice. And by the way, the issue that we haven't really talked about is the increasing prevalence of COVID among children. You know, now kids 5 to 11 are now eligible to get vaccinated. About uh, a little short of uh, 5 million have been, at least gotten the first shot. But over 20 million still have not gotten vaccinated. And parents out there, you know, it's time to kind of get busy and take care of your children. Make sure they don't get sick and that they don't catch it and transmit it to people who are very vulnerable. Uh, It's a turning point for us, guys. You know, and uh, you need to get serious, and understand what the risks are that people are taking don't get vaccinated. Dr. Erwin Redliner directs the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative, Professor of Health Policy Management, Columbia University Medical Center. When we come back, California's highway safety regulators would like to have a few words with Elon Musk. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Later on, Chris Wallace ditching Fox News for CNN's streaming service. Does Fox News still have a legitimate, unbiased news reporting division? And before that, California adopts some Texas swagger. 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 
Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's swagger. Yeah, Texas. How do you say that with a Texas drawl? No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Uh, in a new controversial, wise decision, new controversial approach to gun control. Right now, though, some state lawmakers are letting it be known that they're losing patience with Elon Musk and Tesla over some of the autopilot features that are being tested out. Uh, Sean O'Kane is the senior reporter covering transportation and all things Tesla at The Verge. Sean, thanks for being with us. So this has to do with like the beta system for the autopilot, right, which is a higher level of the car driving itself although it's not full self-driving right and some of the lawmakers are out there saying we've seen youtube videos of these cars getting in crashes or or getting in dangerous situations and why can't we do something about this um why can't they do something about it uh that's a good question i think a lot of this comes down to the fact that these agencies whether we're talking at the state level with the dmv or at the federal level with the national highway traffic safety administration I've just never really dealt with anything like this before. I mean, uh, the California DMV at least has a framework in place for companies that are testing fully autonomous cars as far as, you know, what they're supposed to report, you know, they're supposed to apply for permits and things like that. But that is a pretty freewheeling program. There's not a ton of restrictions and there's a lot of wiggle room in some of the definitions uh, as far as like what what it is that those people have to report, you know, disengagements and crashes, it's, it's sort of all up to, uh, you know, kind of how each company can define and sort of choose to define and argue uh, over the definitions of those words. So I think that's one of the things that we're seeing here is that as Tesla is sort of iterating on this software in real time, uh, you know, with these few thousand people who are testing it in the beta program, uh, we're just seeing that, you know, the, the agencies that are designed to sort of handle some of this stuff or that are supposed to be first in line still haven't quite wrapped their minds around what exactly they should do in response. And so we're sort of in this like weird lim- liminal space where uh, they, haven't, they haven't figured that out yet or if they have, they haven't told anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but, but why is it so difficult for them to grasp this? I mean, a lot of people are buying Tesla cars. Well, some people are buying it because it's like the thing to do. And if you have the money, go ahead and, you know, and, and buy it. But a lot of people are buying it because they are buying into this notion that the car is so smart that it's going to practically, if not totally, drive itself it doesn't clearly so why is it that difficult for officials to to come to terms with that you know i mean i think it's probably a couple things one is that the states tend to do more sort of uh regulating around the drivers themselves that's why you know the states are the one who are issuing licenses to people uh so we tend to see the federal government step in to do more interaction with the companies. Uh, and, you know, if you want to, if you're wary of what Tesla has been doing with the beta software, there are signs that under President Biden, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is starting to take this a little more seriously. They've uh, made some more sort of public comments than they had over the last couple of years about uh about what tesla's doing they've asked for more information and you know when they when they send these letters to tesla asking for information they sort of publish them themselves so they you know they're giving everybody sort of a heads up they're looking at this um so they are starting to move it's just these things sort of unfortunately take a little time Uh, i think one thing that is important to think of is like whether or not you know the way it usually works is that it's on the automaker to sort of step up and sort of pull things back. That's like why we have the recall system that we have and why 
if you actually try to pay attention to how many recalls there are, there's so, so many because <laughs> automakers tend to feel like they're liable for this stuff. And, and so they are typically more overly cautious than that you would imagine. And so Tesla actually did to its credit, you know, it, it, one of the tweaks that it made to the beta software recently after some users were reporting that there was a sort of erratic breaking happening uh, following an update, Tesla did at least uh, roll back that update on the cars, but then filed for the formal recall with um, that agency. So there, there are some signs that they're starting to maybe hopefully take this a little more seriously too. Sean O'Kane, senior reporter covering transportation and Tesla at The Verge. So a little bit later, we're going to be talking about uh, the TV show Succession, which uh, I watched the last episode last night. Mike's mom did too. Uh, both of us are in agreement. It was sensational. This is KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So a lot of mixed feelings out there about the uh, pending decision from the LAUSD to back away from its requirements that all the students be fully vaccinated against COVID by the time classes get back after the winter break. Estimated 30,000 unvaccinated students instead look like they're going to remain in class and now face a deadline at the start of the next academic year. So fall of 2022. With us now is Kelly Gomez, who's president of the LAUSD Board of Education. Thanks for being with us. So especially with the uh, Omicron variant uh, now having sprung upon us, on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being a really bad idea and 10 being a really good idea, the idea of putting back about 30,000 unvaccinated kids into the mix doesn't sound like it's close to the 10. It sounds like it's closer to the 0. Um, well, I, I think what I would want to start first by noting is that a full 87% of our students 12 and older are vaccinated, which is an incredible achievement and is higher than the county of Los Angeles, and I think probably higher than all 50 states. So when you're thinking about whether this is a safe environment for students, our LA Unified Schools are one of the safest possible environments that our youth can be in with that incredibly high vaccination rate. But you don't know, because nobody does, the answer to the question, once you introduce this variant, which was far more contagious, whether that track record will hold steady. So with that in mind and with that uncertainty very much on the table, do you really think it's a good idea? Really? You know, I think that the board's focus has always been and the district's focus has always been about ensuring that student learning can continue as safely as possible throughout the pandemic. So, um, you know, what we are trying to achieve through this policy is how can we ensure the safety of students, but also ensure that learning is not unnecessarily significantly disruptive, um, because this current timeline would cause challenges, not just for unvaccinated students, but also for vaccinated students whose courses might change completely, whose teachers might change as a result of, of the current timeline. So it is really about striking the balance and we continue to have a number of strong protocols in place to ensure the safety of our schools and classrooms. And we have heard that before saying, look, it's gonna get way too complicated because it's a, it's a big number, it's 30,000 kids, it's the 13% of the unvaccinated, moving everybody around is gonna affect a lot of people. And then that the independent study program can't hold that many people and actually function. But I remember that being a concern even before, like when this deadline was announced, when you guys did that, you said, we're going to really have to bulk up the independent study to support all these kids if there are kids that don't get the vaccine. So why wasn't that done in the meantime? 
Well, there, there certainly have been efforts done both on increasing the vaccination rate and on ensuring that our City of Angels programs, our virtual learning are the best possible that they can be given the limitations on what we can do in remote learning based on the state's requirements. So I think that we are absolutely doing all that. We have also, in the meantime, got literally 100,000 students ages 12 and older vaccinated. Um, so there's been a lot of work that's been done as a result of this mandate being put in place. Um, and I'm really proud of all of the district's efforts. I think there were many people who thought we wouldn't get higher than 30 or 40%. So the fact that serving communities of need where there is so much misinformation and vaccine hesitancy that we've reached 87%, that is pretty incredible. So let's go forward to the fall of 2022. What happens then? Is the, the board uh, firm that that's it, that's the date, and any student not fully vaccinated by that date can't come back? The, the board is firm, and I would also point out that vaccination will be required at the start of the 2022 school year, regardless by the state of California, um, and that's for all students in uh, public schools as well as private schools. So there isn't flexibility with regard to that fall of 2022 date. It's really an opportunity to make sure that we can continue to get more students vaccinated um, and prepare our schools so that the same level of disruption um, does not so, occur. So was that was that one of the driving factors for putting things off? Because the thinking was that the state law goes into effect, so therefore the local school district has the cover of the state? No, I think it is really about the balance, as I said, between how can we ensure the safest possible environment for students and staff? And how can we also ensure that our students can continue to learn in the highest quality ways and then we don't cause unnecessary disruption to schools in the middle of the school year? Um, so I think that that was more of, of the factor, but also the fact that if you look back at when we instituted this mandate on September 9th and compare it to today, our schools are undoubtedly a, a world safer than they were then because we put this requirement in place and we have done so much work to get our students vaccinated. Um, so it was really those two factors that were primary. Kelly Gonez, president of the LAUSD Board of Education. Coming up, California's governor takes a look over at Texas. You know, that's that big state down there. And the way that Texas is restricting abortion access and figured, hey, if it works for them, maybe it will work for us and gun control here. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. The Texas abortion law, which effectively blocks the procedure for mothers who were past the six-week mark in their pregnancy, relies on private citizens rather than state officials to enforce it by suing other individuals and abortion providers. Now, the controversial law has been allowed to be put into place in Texas, although the Supreme Court is hearing a challenge on it. And so, California's Governor Gavin Newsom figured, well, if the citizen lawsuit enforcement tactic is allowed to stay in place in Texas, why couldn't it work here? So over the weekend, the governor announced California would seek to take a similar approach to gun control, allowing citizens to sue gun manufacturers or ghost gun providers. Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law, with us. Erwin, thank you. So uh, this was something that was predicted, right? Even in the argument, some of us saying, you know, there's going to be a state that tries this with guns, and uh, I guess we're the first. Indeed, at oral argument, both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh said, the state can create civil liability for those who perform abortions. Why can't the state create civil liability 
for those who engage in same-sex marriages or those who own guns. It's creating civil liability, often for constitutionally protected behavior. So, you know, remembering back to, I guess, what either some school teacher or my mother told me a long time ago, that two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, in this case, two wrongs don't make a right, do they? Well, it's different. Texas was creating civil liability for an activity that's constitutionally protected, a woman having an abortion before the 24th week of pregnancy. California is creating civil liability for what's already illegal in the state. It's already illegal in this state to have an assault weapon. It's already illegal in this state for people to have ghost gun parts. I think that makes the California law quite different from the Texas one. So what happens when the gun companies fight against this California law? Because it'll it can pass a legislature, right? But then it goes into effect and somebody's going to sue. It depends on how the gun companies bring a challenge. If a gun company is sued for violating the law, there's no doubt that the gun company can argue that it violates the Second Amendment as a defense. Just like if a doctor performs an abortion in Texas and the doctor is sued, the doctor can argue that the Texas law is unconstitutional. What the Supreme Court decision from Friday does say that if state officials play no role in enforcing the law, then state officials can't be sued for an injunction in federal court. And so Newsom's proposal adopted Neither he nor the attorney general or other state officials could be sued for an injunction. But you end up then with a society, Erwin, with, with, with a bunch of sort of legal vigilantes, don't you? With people just, you know, with all kinds of different political backgrounds and different interests suing one another, just in some cases for the sake of suing one another. I think you're right. I also worry that the Supreme Court has created a roadmap for states to be able to undermine constitutional rights. What if a conservative state wants to adopt a law that says anyone who performs a same-sex wedding will be liable for a million dollars? Who would risk violating that law and a million-dollar liability, even though it's clear there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage? Could the court, though, point to the differences with this one versus Texas and, and get around it somehow and say, well, the California law is different, so no, you can fight against this, you can strike it down, we're not doing that. Anything's possible, but the Supreme Court on Friday, five to four, was clear that if state officials play no role in enforcing a law, then state officials can't be sued to enjoin the law. I don't think there could be a different rule for abortions than guns than same-sex weddings. How did it take so many years of this country's existence to get to this point where we're even having these discussions about states enacting laws where people can sue one another who have really no interest in something. How did we get to this point? Why did it take so long? Well, it actually didn't. 20 years ago, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit upheld the Louisiana law that allowed doctors to be sued for damages resulting from abortions, including emotional suffering. Texas didn't pay attention to that law for a long time, but now with a much more conservative court, they've tried this approach. And the problem is people copy each other and states copy one another. And there's no doubt that seeing what the Supreme Court said on Friday, California and other states are going to take that same mechanism and apply it in other areas. Well, yeah, what if a bunch of other blue states do the same thing that, that Newsom's doing, and then we've got all these things working their way through at the same time? It's enormously troubling. We usually rely on the government to enforce laws. 
And it's been a longstanding principle that a law is allegedly unconstitutional. Somebody can sue in federal court and can challenge it and it can be enjoined. Now the Supreme Court has undermined that basic mechanism for enforcing the Constitution. So does all this open up like a whole new kind of class that you can teach at a law school? Well, I teach a course called Federal Courts, and in it we discuss in detail the ability to sue government officials to enjoin unconstitutional laws. We spent a good deal of time this semester examining the Texas law and the litigation about it. I think law students, law professors, lawyers, legislators are going to pay careful attention to what the Supreme Court said. It's going to make a huge difference. Yeah, so how do you think this plays out? I mean, what's what's the theoretical end game to this? I don't think we can know at this point in time. I was very surprised by what the Supreme Court decided on Friday. From the oral argument, I thought the majority was going to say, when there's an unconstitutional law, there will be a suit in federal court to enjoin it. But that's not what the court said. And so we're going to have to see, do states like California adopt laws with regard to civil liability for guns? Do states like Arkansas adopt laws with regard to civil liability for same-sex marriages? And so on. I think it's going to take not just months, but years to see how all this plays out. So in other, in other words, we're in for a mess. We have a mess on our hands. Yeah. yeah. I think the court has created a mess here because I said, I think the Supreme Court has now created a roadmap that any state can use to undermine constitutional rights. It just has to pass a law that creates civil liability for the excess rights and enough of a penalty that no one would take a chance on violation. Why can't California adopt a law that says anyone who criticizes the governor can be civilly sued and liable for a million dollars? Who would risk violating that law and want to then raise as a defense that it's unconstitutional? And do you think the court, oh. and do you think the court deliberately did this knowing, I know you mentioned the remarks made by the Chief Justice, but do you think that all the justices were fully cognizant of this is the road it was going to go down, or did it just, did they make a mess and then not realize it fully? Given the questions at oral argument, I think the justices knew these were the potential consequences. My guess is the conservative justice would say, it's not likely that will come to fruition. If there's an unconstitutional law, somebody who's sued can then, as a defense, challenge it. And of course, we've talked about the ability to go to federal court. There's also still the ability to go to state court if state courts are willing to hear such lawsuits. Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law. A mess. We have a mess. Yes. All right. We have more in depth on the way, and we're going to talk about succession, Charles. Yes, which wasn't a mess. It was a good show. It was a good show. Really good show. (laughs) All right. That's coming up next uh, half an hour. This is KNX In-Depth. Daily program goes beyond the headlines to bring you a fresh take on the most interesting stories of the day. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. And now we are going to talk about, it's just all over social media, uh, the final episode of this season for the uh, TV show Succession. And don't worry, if you haven't seen it, we're not going to spoil it for you. I still don't tell people what the end of Titanic is. I'm really good about that. But uh, we're not going out on a limb to declare, I think, that succession, that's the drama, of course, involving a media conglomerate and an extremely dysfunctional family, is one of the best, if not maybe the best, thing going on television right now. And after last night's barn burner finale of the third season, that claim seems pretty legit. 
Brian Lowry, TV critic and media industry analyst for CNN. Brian, did you like it as much as Charles liked it? <laughs> um, I did. I was really pretty bowled over by it. Um, when the season started, we actually got seven of the nine episodes in advance. So we had, uh, you know, critics had seen most of the season, but uh, I really thought the last two episodes were the strongest of the year. So it 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 ended on a on a very big note. So here's my 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 question. Is it that it's such a good show or is it by comparison? It's that everything else on TV is pretty bad. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff on TV right now, but it's uh, you know, I mean, I think it, the show's secret weapon actually is that it's it's laugh out loud funny. Um, you know, you're dealing with these high stakes maneuvering and business deals and everything else. But the, uh, as you said, the dysfunctional family, and it's one of those shows that makes you want to call up your siblings and thank them, um, <laughs> is, uh, you know, is so nasty and so over the top that uh, it plays on multiple levels. And, you know, the inspiration obviously goes back to media dynasties and the Murdochs and everything else. But, you know, we're now at the end of season three and these characters have really taken on a life of their own. Do you think there's going to be a lot of people who are like me who are probably going to start watching tonight because I haven't watched it yet. It's always been on my list. Everybody tells me, you got to watch it. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll get to it. But now watch with it. all this, and then like last <laughs> night, all the tweets were about this. And I was like, well, okay, fine. Do you think this is going to lure in the, the crowd that hasn't quite gotten there yet? You know, I don't know. I mean, with sometimes with a show like this, and this is a show that has a, a very sharp media angle to it. So you get you know, a lot of people sort of who are in the industry um, tweeting about it, which creates this sort of false sense that everybody's watching it when, you know, it does well by the standards of an HBO show, but it's, it's not something you can go to the water cooler and expect everybody to have seen the next day. Um, I, I do think that now that you're this far into it, you've got, you know, close to 30 episodes. Um, it's, it's one of those shows where if you start watching it and you want to binge it, you could get through it and you know a long weekend with some phenobarbital involved <laughs> or something but um and uh and and i you know i could see some people taking that up just to not want to be left out you know what I, what I like about it, and tell me what, what you think, Brian, is, you know, if you think about shows like uh, going back a few years, say West Wing, which was a very literate show with great scripts, but nobody actually in real life talks that way. And, and the thing about Succession is also a very, I think, literate scripts, but I really can't imagine people and certainly some families talking that way to one another. No, I mean, you know, the, the best thing about a, a really good drama is that it's better, you know, in a lot of ways than real life. Nobody nobody has those lines. But, you know, there have been, there've been a number of shows that have tried to kind of cover the world of high stakes business. And it's it's a tough thing to do. I mean, Billions on Showtime does a, does a nice job with it. And Mad Men, obviously, uh, was a great show that, you know, sort of dealt with the high stakes world of advertising at a different moment. But um, this, this has taken these, you know, these guys who basically play Monopoly with real, with real buildings, to use an old, old line, and made them into characters that you don't necessarily like, but you just, you know, you're, it's very hard to take your eyes off them.
Brian Lowry, TV critic, media industry analyst for CNN. Okay, so have we convinced you? Are you yes, going to watch I'm gonna, it now? I'm gonna, I'll start Finally? this week. Yeah, I'll start this week. Okay, okay. I'm holding you to that. And then I'll, I'll we'll start the show. I was like, guess what I watched last night? <laughs> There'll be a test next week. <laughs> yes. With uh, Coming up with Chris Wallace's departure from Fox News, does the most popular cable news outlet still have a legitimate, unbiased news reporting division? Little news coming in right now from the states. California going to reimpose the indoor mask mandates in public settings for all residents, regardless of vaccination status. This starts Wednesday, goes until January 15th. They're talking about Omicron for doing this. Obviously, L.A. County, lots of masks here, but this is varied county to county. So indoor mask mandate for the states, no matter your vaccination status, starting Wednesday through mid-January. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So Chris Wallace had critics on both the left and the right during his uh, years of hosting Fox News Sunday, which is evidence that he was probably doing the job right, uh, correctly, not job right. Yes, you know yes. What I mean? uh, Wallace, who's largely considered to be one of the last true impartial journalists uh, working at a big position over at Fox, abruptly announced at the end of his show yesterday, he's leaving. And where is he going? CNN's new streaming service. So what does Wallace's departure from Fox say about that? outlet in the state of journalism in general in this country, at least television journalism. Justin Barragona covers all things media for the Daily Beast. He is also the founder and publisher of Contemptor, a site focusing on the intersection of politics, culture, and the media. Justin, thanks for being with us. I think I got the name of the, the site, right? Right? Contemptor? Yep, you got it right. Okay. So, um, you know, it's funny when it comes to the question of Chris leaving Fox, do, you know, what does that say and where does it leave it in terms of, of uh, does it have a now an independent uh, down the middle journalism arm? Did it ever? Are you talking about Fox News? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you could say they did. Uh, I mean, what they've always tried to to do, at least, you know, give lip service to it was to uh, separate what they would call the the straight news division from their opinion side. Um, Now, of course, over the years, the opinion side has leaked more and more over into their programming uh, base, uh, and the straight news has been pushed more and more to the side. But, uh, you know, they've always had what you would consider to be well-respected anchors uh, and journalists there over the years, whether it was Shepard Smith or Neil Cavuto, and specifically Chris Wallace. He, he was sort of the, uh, the figurehead for that, uh, you know, leading their uh, Sunday show, uh, the, their Sunday talk show, and generally being relied upon to be uh, the, the guy to do the uh, presidential debates uh, they would turn to during election coverage. Uh, so with his absence, uh, it does bring the question on on who's actually leading that now. Yeah. I mean, what does it say that, that he's going? And, and we know we can put this in context, some of it with, with the big blow up over some of the stuff that Tucker Carlson was doing or uh-huh. lately and all the, the internal machinations over at Fox. A lot of people are not happy in the way that it's headed or more the way that it's headed. But it doesn't seem like that's going to change or they can do anything about it. And so some people are jumping ship. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that would be accurate. And, and that's been happening for the past couple of years. Uh, I mean, in, in late 2019, uh, we saw the uh, we saw Shepard Smith just uh, he, he abruptly left as well. I mean, it, it was after a couple of weeks, uh, but 
there had been a, a bit of a uh, internal civil war between him and Tucker uh, that blew up and eventually uh, Shep just decided uh, he had had enough and decided to leave. He, he didn't have anything set up before he left. Uh, you know, uh, he, he's now at CNBC, uh, but besides Shep, uh, there's Catherine Herridge who left her a little bit after Shep and she went over to CBS News. Uh, recently, you've had Kristen Fisher, uh, who was uh, one of their uh, White House reporters. She decided to go to CNN for a much less lower profile position. She's uh, doing like their space and defense stuff. Okay, so so let but let's now zero in on on Fox because it still mm-hmm. is the the in terms of ratings the the number one uh, cable news uh, source in the country. It beats CNN and MSNBC. Oh, yeah. Uh, so what what is left? What are viewers who do like Fox News and clearly a lot of people do? What yeah. are they left with? I mean, uh, the, the way that a lot of people have uh, basically described it is uh, that it's basically the Tucker Carlson channel now. I mean, uh, what this kind of says is this is the direction that they're going. Uh, they know that he is the top guy there and that he is uh, kind of leading the, the direction of what the programming should look like um and because of that uh, I, I think you do have guys like wallace and maybe even brett bear who don't feel very comfortable with their position there um but that that's that's basically direction which is you know very much uh you know right-wing commentary uh doesn't necessarily need to be what you would consider be pro-trump but it's definitely an anti-biden direction right now uh, and uh, that a lot of it is just very uh, strong opinion. So how you would... for, for Fox viewers, if they like mm-hmm. Tucker's stuff, then who cares if these other guys leave? Maybe it's just being lamented on the outside by people who don't watch Fox. That would be one way to put it. <laughs> I mean, especially if you look at the ratings right now. Uh, like you said, uh, Fox is not only just beating CNN and, and MSNBC, they're beating them combined in pretty much every single hour other than maybe Rachel Maddow's hour. You know, you, you uh, know, in our last se- segment, Justin, we were talking about the, the TV show uh, Succession, which is kind mm-hmm. of a, a fictional version, although not too fictionalized, no, of, the Murdoch, exactly. uh, of the Murdoch empire. So do these changes uh, allowing um, uh, Chris Wallace <clears throat> to leave, cementing the position of people like Tucker Carlson, does this indicate that Rupert Murdoch, who is, I was going to say getting on in years, but he's already oh, way yeah. past getting on. Uh, <laughs> what about his sons? Uh, does this mean that they are like-minded to dad and intend to continue and maybe even make it more of a right-wing tilt? Well, I mean, Lachlan it, it definitely is. Lachlan Murdoch, he, he's the, he is the handpicked successor. Uh, the other son, James Murdoch, is pretty much out of there. So Lachlan's already... Uh, he is a huge defender of Tucker Carlson. Uh, that that's just been well reported over the years. Uh, and anytime that there's been a uh, Tucker-related controversy, which tends to happen every couple weeks, um, where Tucker has said something or you know aired something that that seems uh, over the top or controversial, uh, Lachlan's always at his back. Uh, I mean, the, the Anti-Defamation League has, has come after Tucker a couple times, and, and Lachlan's just brushed them off. Uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, there's pretty much nothing that Tucker can do that uh, Lachlan is going to uh, 
be phased by. And, and uh, the entire programming is kind of centered around Tucker in that style. So uh, it, it is going to still come down to like what, you know, the viewers seem to like it, you know, Tucker, Tucker rates. Uh, but when it comes to your more center, you know, centrist or try to be impartial journalist left at Fox, uh, they're probably wondering where do we go from here? Justin Barragona covers all things media for The Daily Beast, founder and publisher of Contemptor, a site focusing on the intersection of politics, culture, and the media. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.